but yeah, I'm, I'm happy to throw something out too after I, I grind you on your accountability uh, for saying Monaco is the best qualifying ever. And then I'll pivot and say, you know, Saudi Arabia has been a, a regular topic of conversation on this show and, and in the world of F1, but breaking even bigger news. Give me your take, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Was there not much yep. from IndyCar you didn't watch? No, I don't. I don't know shit. Okay. Cool. Uh, all right. I think everything else looked good. This should be a pretty, uh, pretty quick one. Yeah. I uh, famous last words. <laughs> Whatever, dude. I don't have to be. My first thing tomorrow morning is a haircut at eight thirty. So I. Whatever. Let's just let's right, just. So let's before just we dive into the li- uh, before we dive into the lift thing, I want to get your pick your brain a little bit. What do you think is like the most interesting aspect about that? Just like the degree of control that they have, the path that we like, the the hypocrisy, the. They, the reality is, I don't think they're actually going to have a ton of control. Um, it's just an impossible PR, um, uh, hypocrisy for the current tour leadership to sell. And, uh, you know, the other thing that's, that's wild is that the DP world tour is getting rolled. I heard this on a pot on a live show for one of my favorite podcasts, like literally 45 minutes before we just jumped on this and they were just wrapping up the show. And one of them mentioned like, Hey, so you familiar with the Ryder cup, like U S versus Europe and golf. So the, the PGA of America, I believe organizes the U S team for the Ryder cup, or maybe it's the USGA, one or the other. And the DP world tour is the sponsoring organization that organizes the European tour and the DP or the European team and the DP world tour is getting caught up in this new for-profit global golf entity they're proposing. And then technically speaking would come under the leadership of Jay Monahan and the PGA tour. So they're, they've literally proposed a structure that would put both sides of the Ryder cup under common legal ownership, which is just like, what like is there not like an independent there's not even an independent european tour when yeah, the dust settles on like, this it almost was like this weird end around from going to like a more fragmented system to one that's even more consolidated than before correct and and the the legal case uh, that live i'm sorry that the pga tour or live was trying to make against the pga tour was that the pga tour was a monopoly and it was primarily an antitrust suit and now the lawsuit that the PGA Tour needs to make go away is so the antitrust the PGA argument. That's needing to make like who, now. That's what I didn't know was like who was who had the leverage in the sort of legal well environment, P- and that's where I thought Saudi the, to get out from under legal pressures was going to write a big fat check. But I guess you're saying. So- the, yeah. Though I think there was pressure on both from a legal standpoint. Like one, the legal fees were just absurd, and nobody wanted to continue to pay out of pocket for those, especially the PGA Tour. The Saudis were on one hand willing to bleed the PGA Tour dry, but they didn't want to go through discovery, right? Like why would they in a legal proceeding? Neither does the PGA Tour. They're a nonprofit organization that's probably got some shit swept under their rug. So like. Nobody wanted to go through that, but objectively putting the money and the liability aside, the PGA Tour was probably going to win the case. But now the antitrust litigation, like now the federal government's going to get involved and they're going to have to say like the FCC and, uh, you know, the, um, 
who's the SEC, not the SEC. And FCC so previously, and, the FCC or the FTC. Yeah. The, FTC. Yeah. yeah, thank you. But I guess previously, what you're saying, like Saudi was probably going to lose their case, but simultaneously, they had an antitrust against, case against the PGA, which now that they've consolidated even beyond the is going to be even harder for the tour How are you going to say, like, it's almost like you're you've pled guilty already because one of your Correct. parties in this merger was already saying was there was suing you for the same grounds. thing. Correct. Exactly. Before consolidation. Now, now your partner is basically who was previously your prosecutor is and just got done accusing you of the thing that now you're even more guilty of. It it's it's wild. It what happens it so makes, what happens with all the people with the money who like got those checks? Were that was that so, just like a guaranteed check? Like guaranteed no, so money those, or was that like those, a contract? So that was like a contract and some of it was paid out up front, but some of it was not. So let's assume that of the 10 highest paid live signers, let's assume they averaged $100 million a person and each of them has gotten half of that on average. So let's say $50 million paid, $50 million unpaid. That's not a bad deal for them. But the thing is, as a result of this, live probably dies. And the PGA Tour is still in charge. And their membership rules are still in place. So now you have a situation where unless the PIF, the Saudis negotiate re-entry terms for live players, which wasn't announced today, could come in the future. But like, unless they negotiate on behalf of their members, there is no guarantee that like a Brooks Kepka who left isn't going to have to pay back some absurd fine to get his membership in the PGA Tour reestablished so he can play. The PGA ha- holds the cards for those players. So on the in surface, terms it looks of, like they made out really good, yes. but you don't know how that gets handled on so, the back end. So Phil Mickelson's out there dunking on people on Twitter today, but Phil doesn't realize that he's about to lose all of his fucking leverage, and he better be secure with the amount of money he has in his pocket today. I tell you who, it doesn't hurt Phil because his earning potential on the PGA Tour is basically zero from this point forward because he's so old. Who it really hurts is like Kepka, like Taylor Gooch, these younger guys. Time perspective. Yeah, because yeah. they got a lot more years, and so like the yeah, Phil the, should be the, retired anyway. The present, the present, the PJ Tour is going to want a larger chunk of the present value of their future earnings, like as reparations. And so, and 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 those guys have to cave because now, if this new global tour gets hold, they literally don't have anywhere else to fucking play. It's it. You think it's, it's is this, this thing option. even a real deal? Because what it made it so, sound like this was like an agreement in principle, but there well, is no specific terms, it, and that's where everything breaks down anyway. It's a framework agreement. And so that's the other criticism I have of everything that got announced today is that it was announced with a high degree of finality in the language they used. And some of that was due to the, the reporting, because you can't control journalists to some extent, but also like the words that Jay Monahan and Yasir used. On CNBC, it made it sound like it was signed, sealed, and delivered. And the reality of it is we know, you know, anybody that's been through a corporate acquisition before knows that framework agreements are worth about, you know, ink on toilet paper. Like, you got to have yeah, it ratified by the players. It seems like they had three principles, like, things well, of like, well, we're going to put a person in charge of this, and this is going to be our general structure. Correct. And it's going to be this kind of entity. And that, and that was kind of the end of it. But that And that's all a framework agreement can achieve. But now they got to do the dirty work. It's like, it's like saying... It's, it's basically like saying, like, you know, we have this huge conflict inside of the U.S., and therefore we're going to ratify a new amendment to solve it. And here's high level what the amendment's going to say. And then they announce it. And everybody's like, oh, that sounds great. Good luck getting a fucking amendment yeah. ratified. Yeah, like, it's like you got it through committee. 
Yes, and 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 now they've got to get it approved by the policy committee on the PGA Tour, which has player representation on it. And those guys are pissed. You don't think Rory McIlroy is pissed for you making him stand up for the last six months and beat the morality drum in the name of the PGA Tour, and now you literally took a check from the Saudis? Like, he is going to be pissed. Like, your, your most influential players are going to take some fucking hand-holding if they're going to get back on your side. Like, I... I'm going to tell you what, all this about Jay Monahan, people are, are eviscerating him on Twitter today. I will say this, he's got some fucking stones and really must believe that he has the ability to get the PJ membership back on his side and is willing to take shots because, dude, that obviously the bold. The big like, thing that's bold. circulating is all like the 9-11 comments and like almost when you look back at it, like I get it, but almost it makes you think less of him for what he said then. Like, to be using that kind of tragedy for your, like, entertainment sport-like controversy. And then now you look even more ignorant for having used that falsely. So, there's no good look coming from any of that. Dude, they, and and I, the podcast I was just listening to earlier, they were really, really, what they articulated this super well. He made, they made a choice. They made a PR choice, the PGA Tour, to stand on the morality hill when they were competing against the Saudis. And, 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 and they should have known, right, the risk that that would pose to how this would sound in the future if they knew this was a possibility, even a okay. remote possibility. But, but, but tell me this. Does this change anything for you? Are you going to stop watching? No. At the end of the day, dude, it's – so here's the thing. I am I am somebody that likes to romanticize and believe that there are still really principled people in the world and that those principled people shape the future of the world and commercial marketplaces and things of that nature, sports otherwise. That's and, ignorant. Well, yeah, no fucking <laughs> duh. Right? Like, but like for me, these types of things are just like another nail in the coffin and shot to the heart of just the very obvious thing that's been said for forever is the tales all the time is to follow the money. And I like I get it. Like that sounds so obvious. But it's so easy, especially as an American and American enterprise and just all the patriotism wrapped up in it. When you have a professional sports league that's so steeped in your like national identity and then it and then it isn't it's and then it all of a sudden something happens and it's less so that kind of sucks, man. Like that really blows. And I know that maybe sounds dorky, but I fucking love golf and I I fall for all of the really principled tradition and legacy and service kind of values that like golf espouses. And you could sit there and laugh at me and be like, ha ha, Graham, you've fallen for it and drank in the Kool-Aid all these years. Like about time you woke, about time you woke up. But I, you know, it's not all of one and none of the other. Like it, it still sucks, man. Like it's a country that I wish didn't have influence in the world on account of their moral record which has very substantial... I, I get it. The U.S. has done bad shit, man. Like, lots of it. Like, we've overthrown governments we had no business touching. We have killed countless civilians as a byproduct of our, our, our waging of war. But, like, Jesus, man, women couldn't drive in this country until two years ago. They are so far behind on just a basic humanity scale. Like, I just don't want them to have the influence on the world they have. And I get that that's not, like, possible, but it still sucks. Like, based on how I see the world, like, it sucks. Like, ugh, I'm sorry. I just, 
you know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to make this the cold open, and then we won't come back to golf later on in the episode. I just, like, I'm sad, Gerald. I'm sad. Three lights, four lights, five laps. Pause. Go, go, go. He has been told to come in lap after lap after lap. And what does he do? He ignores them. A committee meeting about it. Stick it on and send him out. Just get it through the bus stop chicane, George. Try and straight line it. Get to the line and we'll see what happens. Paris tries to cut off Hamilton. Oh, oh. Long time goes straight on. This is kind of falling. This is the worst start for a Grand Prix that I have ever seen in the whole of my life. What is going on here in Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Unqualified. Um, I got to say, we got a special episode here for you tonight. We are here to talk about now my second favorite Saudi-owned professional sport, uh, Formula One. As always, we had a great weekend of action on track. Uh, Barcelona, most improved player on the F1 calendar. Think they're going to be hard to topple. We got our, our main man, Gerald Carter, here to walk us through it all. Buddy, great to see you. How are you this evening? I'm good, man. Mountain training, climbing training, getting motorcycle license soon. I'm living my best life, but really, most importantly, I'm here to support you in this, what can only be described as a confusing and trying time as a United States golf fan. So I just want you to know <laughs> that I care about you. I'm here for you. And it's all going to be okay. You, you know what I care about? I, I care about your calves. And I'm curious how they're looking these days with all of your... Uh... You know, your yodeling that you've been doing, your mountain yodeling. <laughs> oh, they are looking hardy for sure. Oh, yeah. Nice. Nice. Seriously, though, are you are you a better... Is it fair to say what you were doing was orienteering or mountaineer, mountain, mountaineering or some combination of the two? Did you have a compass in your hand? No, it was a pretty pretty direct route. I mean, you knew you were going up the, the Kular or it was pretty much just kind of alpine rock climbing mostly. So we hit the flat irons, we hit... El Dorado Canyon. It was good shit, man. I know I know you're legit now because you didn't say Coulier uh, <laughs> instead of cool R. Uh, I, uh, oh, what was I going to ask? Uh, oh, shit. I'll have to cut this out. All right. Well, I'll have to edit that out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. All right. Uh, but enough about me. Enough about <laughs> golf. Let's get to the please. race weekend. What we're really here to talk about. Um, and you know, this had to be the most stupendous, exciting, tremendous race and qualifying that has ever been had. Or maybe not. I don't know. I was just getting caught up in the excitement after, you know, your big claims about Monaco qualifying. So maybe, maybe we overplayed that. Uh, but as you said, Barcelona, look, good weekend, top to finish, uh, the, the qualifying was fascinating, a lot of excitement up and down the grid and some some crushing heartbreak for a few drivers in particular. Just recapping the weekend, I mean, Verstappen, dominant throughout. Norris showed up once again with a stellar qualifying performance, put it into third, uh, but unfortunately all was lost on lap one as he made contact with Hamilton at the start. And similarly, Gasly, looking great in qualifying, finally showing up in that Alpine, outdoing Ocon in qualifying, only to have those hopes dashed even before the race started with multiple impeding incidents during qualifying, uh, dropping him 
back with a sixth place grid penalty. Meanwhile, the much uh, talked about Mercedes side pods and front suspension improvements from Monaco seemed to pay dividends here in uh, Barcelona after what can only be described as a curious and chaotic qualifying between the two Mercedes drivers. Uh, Meanwhile, Aston taking a bit of a step back, it seems, from what's been a strong early season and pretty much par for the course, except Ferrari looking more lost than usual. That's hard to do. That's hard to do. (laughs) It was impressive, to say the least. Hats Uh, off. And and meanwhile, Sonoda, I think what we will cover here and and much talked about in the aftermath, losing a potential for points finish um, based on a steward's decision in his battle with Joe. We'll we'll debate that momentarily. Um, But... Highlight of the weekend, maybe Horner, Nico Rosberg. Give me your breakdown of the post-race interview that shook the racing world. The gloves came off. Rosberg decided to take a bite out of Perez's performance, and uh, Horner uh, Horner uh, did not, in fact, have to hand it to him and did take it personally. So i uh, love to see that. I'm going to be honest. I've never, and I think it's well documented on the show, I think Nico Rosberg is a value detractor from all things broadcasting. And so to see him get undressed uh, by somebody who's still actually connected to the sport and drivers in a meaningful way did make my heart feel pretty darn good. I mean, he does great track guides, you know, for, for sim racing, but Stick to that. I've always, I've always felt like anytime he's like brought in to do broadcasting, he's like, you know, sometimes he's like dialing in. I feel like he's just dialed in from some yacht, like loosely watching Dude. what's going on and just sort of pontificating. So I would agree with you. I think, you know, obviously has the experience, but doesn't seem as as plugged in. And, and he kind of just off on his own, like very personal narratives, especially when you know, Mercedes was front and center in the in the narrative. I perceive him as a pretty self-absorbed dude. So I just try and dedicate as little attention to what he says as I, as I can. There's a lot of more insightful people in the sport who are less self-absorbed than, than he is who have a microphone. So, but to your point about Horner, I I think all that showed was another great leadership characteristic, right? I mean, in your sort of lowest moment when you probably, when Perez feels like he's reeling, he had a moment of a glimmer of hope, at least in his mind that the world championship was on the table only to kind of have that dashed over the last three weekends, pretty, pretty uh, clearly by Verstappen and then have your, your boss, you know, stand by you like that very publicly. I mean, that's, that's as much as you can ask for from a, from a leader. So prop for Horner props to Horner for standing by his guy. I know we're going to get to this, but Perez did not have a bad race. Like (laughs) he really didn't Um, all things considered. I mean, yeah, you'd knock him for the qualifying performance all day long, but um, on a track that, I don't think anyone would question suits Max's strengths more than Checo's. You know, he came through the field reasonably. Um, so, I mean, yeah, but we'll get to it. But the problem is qualifying. I mean, it's never been Correct. the race. Uh, it's, 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 it's a, yeah, you can't excuse it. it. Yeah. So yeah. we'll get to that more. But as I have effusely praised the Barcelona B- Barcelona Grand Prix, in part in jest, just to mock you. What was your thoughts on the overall race quality? And and did you have a favorite battle from this weekend? Uh, other than the Mercedes drivers battling uh, in qualifying? Cause, <laughs> yes, because uh, obviously that was number one. So yeah, I what, did what was your enjoy- second, what was your I second did, favorite? I, I did very much enjoy that. Um, 
there was that, I, I don't remember exactly, I know Hulkenberg was one of them. There was like that three-way battle in the midfield that kind of turned into like a three-car kind of swapping of order, like four, five, six turns consecutively. You love to see that. I mean, obviously, those that's not a not a battle constructed of my favorite drivers on the grid, but like, um, I thought that was good. I mean, look, objectively, it, George Russell coming through the field is pretty impressive. Like, it was cool to see that car stick. He put in a lot of late moves into turn one that were pretty impressive. He didn't ever outbreak himself. Um, those weren't as much of like backs and forths, but just impressive, con- you know, car control. Um, and and the I mean, I, I thought that the I'm answering way more than your original question, but the Verstappen signs turn one, I, I thought was also good racemanship by and large um, and wouldn't be tainted with, you know, speculation about whether it should have been a penalty if the stewards hadn't effed up the Sonoda decision because uh, it was basically the same effing thing. Um, so anyway, uh, what, what about you? What do you think? Yeah, I think you nailed it. The the Hulkenberg, Sonoda, Joe sort of three-way battle. I think his double overtake on both of them at one point was just like pure class. And knowing that that Haas has issues with tire degradation, I think he just gets a new set of tires on him. He kind of just says, fuck it. Like, I'm going to just drive the wheels off. I'm going to have fun with this while I can. And, you know, I'm going to subsequently slide further and further back in the field. But he made the race damn exciting on on good rubber and and when he was in traffic. So yeah, that was awesome. Well, and then yeah, credit to to Russell as well. What is it with that Haas? Like they just have more downforce than they need. Is that the general idea? And like they're just ripping tires to shreds. I mean, I I would think so. It's it's a similar dynamic that you see with Ferrari, right? They have sort of inexplicable inexplicable and excessive tire degradation, right? Really good qualifying times. It seems like they're able to get good maximum lap time, but you just can't sustain that. And so, yeah, I would assume they're overstressing the tires with whatever their aero package looks like. Well, one question I do have kind of going back to the, to the racetrack writ large is, you know, I feel like leading up to this weekend, we've still at times kind of wanted to relitigate or maybe not had a confident or finalized position on the effectiveness of the new car design in terms of how it influences the quality of racing. I feel like we can shut the book on that at this point and say, yeah, guys, like we took a step forward. Like, I don't know what the overtaking were numbers were in Barcelona two years ago, but they were probably less than 15. And now we had what you wrote in here, 65. Sure. A lot of that had to do with removing that chicane, but also like we need to appreciate that this new car design is most effective on tracks where overtaking uh, precedes high speed turning sections. Uh, or follows high-speed turning sections, and that's what you had in Barcelona. And cars are able to stay close and then take advantage of even shorter straights. It's it just like, we, we 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 need to end that debate. Like, th- this was clearly a step forward for Formula One. Well, there's 65 this weekend, 48 last year, so much more than 17, but the average was 35. And so both of the last two years under the regulation, seeing double the amount. Now, that being said, I think obviously you had many, many more due to the sort of mixed qualifying conditions, right? Starting rain before qualifying, a little bit of wetness on the track. That obviously always throws a wrench in things. Um, But but yeah, I think you saw a lot of back and forth. And I think you also see a lot of mixed up teams throughout the midfield, right? Sure. Red Bull is running away with it. They nailed it and they continue to maintain their gap. But after them... Is it Aston? Is it Ferrari? Is it Mercedes? Does Alpine ever get in the mix? You have 
you know, Norris jumping up there and qualifying on the right time. Like it seems far more intermingled. And then even when you look in the back in the grid, Williams is up there sometimes beating Haas. Haas is getting to Q3, but losing to Alfatari and then Alfa Romeo's, you know, in the in those fights. So it just feels much more muddled. Whereas before, pretty much, you know, prior regulation towards the end of that that spec, you, you kind of knew where everyone was going to be on the weekend as a whole. Um, and so I would agree with you. And I think you are seeing a lot of close following for numerous, numerous laps. I mean, Joe was putting yeah. the pressure. Sonoda was behind Hulkenberg. Joe was putting the pressure on Sonoda for a long period of time, ultimately forcing that error. And so, yeah, I, I think it's led to a lot of a lot of interesting battles and a lot of interesting hunts. All right. So with that, I've poked fun a little bit uh, at you already, but as we've said before, accountability is the name of the game. And I, if I recall correctly, which I, I I'm quite sure you I don't. do. You ah, don't. Let, can we can we pause here? Can we run the? Play, can we no, run I got, the yeah, yeah, I got. You'll go play ahead. It back? Go ahead. All no, right, I won't. But go ahead. <laughs> I think you made the claim that maybe the Monaco qualifying was the most exciting ever. After this weekend, do you still feel that way? Or or do you think every qualifying weekend is going to be the most exciting there ever was? Sorry, I just needed a few seconds to spit all the words out of my mouth that you've been putting in there. Uh, it, took, it, took me, it took me a second. Um I think I I think what I said was it is up there with the better qualifying sessions I have seen, and I listed some specific reasons why. I don't. I I, uh, I would like to first start by building common ground with you. Uh, we'll, we'll try that. In 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 such. Yes, I was positively surprised by this Barcelona qualifying, but ranking it relative to something like Monaco in terms of sheer excitement, I never will. Surely on the basis that there was never. Any question in this Barcelona qualifying who was going to be on pole? Never a doubt. Not through Q1, Q2, or at any point in Q3. Which, to me, is a significant damper on how objectively exciting the qualifying session can be. It was good. You're you're highly oriented towards pole position, and particularly in Monaco, pole being the winner. Those four or five different drivers having a shot at it meaning that they're getting the different win, you know, for a first team this season to win other than Red Bull. You're very Dude, biased towards sort of the front pole position. Any argument against would be like saying you love to read suspenseful fiction, but you prefer your climax halfway through. Like, what? I talked to some like, of my girlfriends. They would agree. That, well, I truly, and I can't say this more emphatically, have no comment on that. Uh <laughs> Um, it was supposed uh, to be a self-deprecating joke, but then it, it sounded very praiseworthy. Um, I was meaning to say, ah, fuck, whatever. Just that's continue. yeah, that's 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 staying in. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I guess I would like to hear your kind of proposal for what constitutes an exciting qualifying if it isn't, you know, suspense built around the top, if not just pole, but just the top three qualifiers. I mean, I think you you caught me last time, right? It is it is whatever sort of surprise positioning. So I, I've accepted the first spot is by and large going to go to Red Bull. Maybe, well, let's be honest, maybe not the first two. But 
given Perez's recent qualifying form. But yeah, to see Norris, to see Gasly, to to see certain people struggle, to see Russell, you know, down in Q2, like that stuff is way more interesting to me to see more of like midfield teams have a shot to crack into the top five, the top 10. Um, yeah. So you know I, I, I care is? less about the, the, the pole position, honestly. This is exposing a philosophical fault line between you and I, which is you prefer to relish in people's pain and I prefer, prefer to relish in people's victory. That's, that's exactly what we're discussing right now. And you know what? It's not surprising at all. It's not surprising at all. I'm Here not sure that's what actually is characterizing this debate, so, but I don't you, disagree you, with you, your characterization you just, of either of us. You just made an argument that you love to see drivers who don't belong to go out in Q1 out in Q1. That is the definition of relishing in someone's pain. Who's to say they don't you deserve know? to go out in Q1? If they don't do it, what what is this well, deserve you know what, to go anywhere? You know, okay, let's not make this a question of a philosophical What I would say it's more of universe. drivers overcoming whatever conditions are on track, particularly adverse ones such as rain, doing a superior jibes than, yes, drivers you would expect to be higher up purely because of their performance of their car. I like to see the circumstances where the drivers make the difference, and particularly in rain qualifying, that obviously happens much more. But I just care less about pole, which I think was the was the focal point within within Monaco. But with that, um, should we turn to some of the race team details? I don't see why not. All right. There's well, a lot ten- there. There's a lot, lot of spicy team level detail. A lot of team excitement this week, for sure. I mean, the, the most vanilla of them all had to be Red Bull, though. I mean, look, Verstappen dominated start to finish. Paul win. <laughs> Fastest lap, uh, despite his... His teammates or his team's sort of subtle discouragement to pursue it. Meanwhile, Perez continues to struggle in qualifying 11th this weekend, not able to recover either to the same degree that you've seen Verstappen recover last season. Um, you know, he, he finished only two and a half seconds off of Russell in fourth, but he just, I would have expected to see him. Um, at least get back on the podium. But with that being said, he still made up six points on Alonzo. So still holds that, uh, that lead in second for the driver's championships. But let's talk about Perez for a moment. To what do you attribute his sort of loss of qualifying form in recent races? And do you think, you know, we talked about it a lot on this show. Everyone has, of he needs to improve in qualifying to, you know, solidify his position on the team. But let's be honest, he's trying and he's finishing the race in fourth. Should he just try to qualify like top five and put the car on the podium every weekend? Um, let's be honest, Monaco, he just effed up. You know, like I think from a drivability standpoint, he could have been fine. He just effed up. And you could say, well, that's still part of driver performance. And I would say you're right. But like, you know, that, ha- that does tend to happen to everybody except Max, basically. Uh, Barcelona for me was like he had an issue with the drivability to the car and it, this this came down to he doesn't know how to make the car work effectively on this track like Max can that does make sense it follows in line with this whole narrative of like Checo seems to have the low speed stuff pegged the low speed turns Max just 
knows how to point the nose in high speed turns and get something out of it that nobody else does. And maybe that's where the differences in the drivability of this car are going to be most exaggerated. You know, on that accord, you know, if that framework holds and Perez has a clean weekend in Canada in two weeks, I would expect him to be closer as a result, just based on how that track drives. I guess we'll have to see. I guess my general takeaway here is, Gerald, I don't want to – I think it's a little bit unfair to just, like, zoom this out as, like, an indictment on Perez overall on the team. Like, this is who we thought he was going to be all season, and we were okay with okay with it. He just exceeded our expectations for the first five races. And everybody got an overinflated sense of what he could achieve, and now they're going to act like they're disappointed in him. Like, I don't – none of this changes anything for me in terms of what I would have expected out of him on this team. And I – I would imagine Horner feels the same way. Now, if he continues to snowball and keeps putting it outside of top 10 on the grid to start races, he's not going to have a contract next year, but like, or he's going to get bought out. But I don't think that's going to happen. I like, let's get, let's, I think the guy has earned a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. Just my two cents. No, I, I don't think he's going anywhere through, through his current contract, but I do think there's, there, I don't think the expectation outside of the expectations that he put on himself to perform more closely to Verstappen, right? Similar trajectory last year. What else are you supposed to say? But early part of the season, you know, heavily street track dominant. He did very well, but, but he never, he was never a stellar qualifier, but it just seems like he's trying to push it that bit much, that bit more. And going over the edge. And it's almost like he sort of needs to take a bit of that longer view, take a little bit of the expectation off of himself and say, if I qualify top five, I'm getting second in the race. That's good enough. Aren't you... Aren't you the champion of the principal driver who viciously competes in all circumstances and just throws caution to the wind vis-a-vis Max Verstappen? And now you're going to try and... Try and assassinate Perez for doing the same thing. Mike, my, my response to you is what else is he supposed to do? You can criticize him for pushing it over the limit and making mistakes as a result and for being a little bit overly confident in his ability to match Max. But the alternative that you're asking of him is to eat humble pie and just be content with being a number two driver and just chalking up to that. And I guess what I'm saying is that's not unreasonable, but I can't fault him for not accepting that. Like, you know, I, I, I just... Yeah. You the way you characterize my position is true with the caveat of within their abilities. Right? Fair because enough. at the end of the day, it's about maximizing the outcome at the end of the weekend. Right now, fourth is not doing that. So whatever he needs to well, do to get second and as close to first as possible, he needs to do, but it's not happening in qualifying like that. And so he, he characterizes And then it never has his- been his thing. Yeah, for, fair enough. But he, but you could see why he would characterize his abilities as being able to hold a gap to Verstappen at Baku and, and show up and feel like he should be able to repeat that in multiple places or at least learn how to. And I guess I'm saying he's not crazy for thinking that. You and I can sit here and say that Max is inevitable, and so we're not surprised, but it doesn't make what he's doing irresponsible as a driver. Now, if he continues on through the rest of the season and makes a ton of mistakes and throws away his point earning potential for the sake of single lap pace. Yeah. Then, you know, if that develops into a pattern, then I think we have a conversation. I just want, what I'm saying is I don't think we're there yet. I think it's a little early to blow the whistle on him. Yeah, no, but I, but I do think the, the intriguing thing about this sport is always you are trying to get as close to the edge of the cliff 
right? As top, as close to the top of the mountain as you can before you go over and plummet down the cliff all the way to the bottom. Like the limit is so stark and he is just stepping past that. And so I think he needs to rein it back in and maximize what he can. It's almost like when you talk about DeVries, right? Where it's like, all right, you're trying to come out hot. You sort of need to reset and then build back up to to the pinnacle because right now it does feel like he's he's reeling a little bit and hasn't gotten a sort of quote unquote clean weekend um in a bit so i I think that's where he needs to just kind of push the reset button uh, a bit talking about cliffs a lot you sound like a man who's climbed some mountains recently (laughs) got it on the brain um all right my my red bull tank's empty (laughs) all right well then with that let's turn to a more exciting news Mercedes double podium this weekend, two, three Hamilton in front of Russell, I I guess, especially surprising given their qualifying performance, really only starting the race race in fifth for Hamilton and, and 12th for Russell. But most notably it was Q2, I believed where, you know, Russell in front of Hamilton going down the home straight. Um, Russell in front of Hamilton. Hamilton already had a decent time on the board. Yes, should have pushed, but didn't really need it. Whereas Russell was was on the bubble and needed to put in a better lap time to get out of Q2. Only to have them sort of going down the straight. Russell, it looked like slowing down because of of signs on the right side of the track, Hamilton trying to pass him, Russell weaving over, ultimately the two coming together. Um, I guess, what the hell happened? What did you make of, of that contact? Did you place blame on, on either party? I think it was probably more Russell's fault than Hamilton, but I don't think it was egregious. I, I guess what I'm saying is I believe him when he says he, I genuinely didn't see Lewis there. You know, like they seem to resolve the fault for it pretty quickly, even over team radio before the session was over. Um, so I don't think that there was really much doubt in either driver's mind, like how that had transpired. Now, with that said, man, how easily could that have become like a Silverstone Joe turn one crash? Like when tires collide at the ends of home straights before cars have really hit the braking zone, that is when like tire cars go into like uh, fences. Like it, so that could have been ugly, like very, very ugly. Um, so yeah, and hey, look, I mean, George, you know. I wouldn't say it happens often, but he's a guy that does find himself in high-speed kind of straightaway collisions, not infrequently. So, you know, I think back to the Botas Imola moment, you know, two years ago. Um, so it's something to reflect on. What do you think? Yeah, Russell does have a – and they kind of talked about this on the race broadcast as well. as He, yeah. he does still find himself in more situations than I think the team would would like, whereas – by and large, Hamilton comes out pretty much unscathed uh, in nearly every race, unless it's you know wheel to wheel with with Verstappen. But honestly, I I was yes, obviously Russell should have seen Hamilton. He weaved to the left while Hamilton was passing him. But I guess I was just surprised that Hamilton was that close behind Russell. Now Russell did slow down because of seeing signs, so maybe it wasn't as 
small of a gap as it seemed, but I guess I would have expected given it seemed like Hamilton had the pace to have a bit of a larger gap and then sort of hopefully close that down a bit throughout the lap and then capitalize on the slipstream on the sort of closing home straight. And so it just seemed like a weird team miscommunication in terms of how wide the gap was to one another. And I'm also not sure why Russell backed off at all to begin with, just because he saw signs who was on the inside. Like, I, I'm not sure why he didn't continue his lap per usual. So it was a weird, it weird across the board. If, if Hamilton would have gone for that move and it had been an actual race lap, you would have called that a late lunge. Like, and then it's like, all right, well, like, it's not that that's wrong, but is it necessary, you know, on a lap that's not a race lap? Like, so I, 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 I think I, I, I see the side, that side as well. Well, so this set up uh, Russell for what could have been a long and difficult race, but as you alluded to earlier, I mean, made up, what, six places in the, the opening few laps? So, so fast. I guess, what did you make of his, his recovery drive? I mean, I watched his onboard for like the first five, six overtakes, and I don't think any one of them individually was like this brilliant moment of race craft, but he did just really let the race come to him very effectively because he had like one of the double overtakes he had was basically him just taking advantage of essentially two cars getting out of position, fighting each other in front of him, which is like that is in and of itself part of race craft is kind of staying patient and letting kind of overtake opportunities come to you. So yeah, he f- clearly felt confident. The car was well planted, and he made some great moves. So, um, I mean, it. Well, we'll get to the guess. I, I don't know when you want to get to the overall Mercedes car performance in general, but well, yeah, I guess both that would have been my next seemed question. More confidence. Yeah, that would have been my next question: is how much did you chalk it up to Russell? Which it sounds like somewhat. Yeah, you know, there was no impressive. He's a great impressive driver. overtakes, but it seemed like the the overall performance of the car was significantly better this weekend and, and aided him moving up up the field pretty pretty rapidly to to get behind Russell for third. I'm sorry, behind Hamilton for third. You know, the the predictable reaction from this weekend is the Mercedes has is back, you know, they're back. Um the tables have turned on Aston. It's all over. The ta- Aston's done, you know, it's now they're going to they're now they got Red Bull in their crosshairs, yada 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 yada. I you know I'm a moderate voter, so I'm going to preach caution here. We said very similar things after Barcelona last year. Mercedes showed up and significantly outkicked the average performance of that car throughout the season in a hot race, you know, because they got the tires flipped on. I know this is a different spec, and you have more reasons to be optimistic than pessimistic, but let's not count everybody else out just yet. I think if anything... What Mercedes has earned over the last two seasons is for us to all say, let me see it a couple more times, homie. Like, I'm going to need to see that a couple more times. So that's what I'm waiting for. But overall, how could you not be positive if you're on Team Mercedes? For sure. No denying that. Yeah, I mean, we'll see if it continues. But yeah, you got to be you got to be excited that the the pivot in car design yields benefits and if this does materialize and they do start with sort of a new chassis that was built with this design in mind that that only is green lights for them in the next couple of years ahead 
But it also does seem like, you know, Aston Martin, on the other hand, did struggle a little bit. And it does seem like they they struggle on sort of front limited tire uh, tracks and maybe slower speed tracks where it seems like they are really good in those like Bahrain, right? Like high speed, high speed corners, probably good in, in Silverstone. So we'll see. But just to recap their performance, um, well, before we get to Aston's performance all, I, I think we just need to pause for a moment and and appreciate the fact that after a, a few weeks out of the limelight, some waning performance, the prodigal son has returned, stroll back up into Q3, qualified sixth, finished sixth, will note, finished ahead of Alonso this race weekend, who recovered from ninth only up to a lowly seventh place this weekend. Um, I mean, let's first off, I'd love to hear your effusive praise for the, the great weekend that, that Lance Stroll had. What do you, do you have a few words? I, the guy literally needed a free handout from his teammate to not get overtaken by him at the end of the race. Like, Dude, if you if you want to buy this guy's merch, <laughs> you go ahead and empty your wallet. That's all I, I like. Go, be my guest, you know, like be my guest, Gerald. So, since you brought it up first, what was your thoughts on Alonzo's choice not to pass Stroll at the end of the race? Look, I have already said in our offshoot conversation about golf how much I romanticize principled people. And like to believe that principled people are always going to be principled people. I would have liked to call Fernando Alonso a principled driver. But clearly the man knows who butters his bread. And thus, Gerald, as we always do, we follow the money. So, do I like it? No. Am I surprised by it? No. No arguments for me. Yeah, I, honestly, just a little bit to, there's one thing, it's one thing to share a break bot setting with your teammate. There's, it's one thing to, to praise them mid race because you caught a glimpse of their pass on the, on the big screen while you were driving by, but with multiple laps left on better tires somebody who has historically been an incredibly fierce competitor and never shied away from racing their teammate. And, and I've been the one of, of the two of us who has been more encouraging of teammate battles, um, you know, a la Aston Martin and, and Ocon, or I'm sorry, and Alpine in, in recent years. Um, yeah, it was just too bad. And Looks weak for the team. I don't think it's a great look for Alonzo. And as you alluded, it's even a worse look for for Stroll, who who looks like he's being handed even more, you know, not only his seat, but also his his finishing position. And and look, yeah, it might not have been a lot of point differential between the two, but Alonzo's trying to battle for third, I would have thought, in the driver championship, but clearly that's not a big priority. Even Coulthard talking about it's all about the money you know noting Alonzo probably already hit his points performance bonus in his contract so he's taking his foot off the gas which uh is absurd but 
how much longer does this have to go on before Interpol like raids Lawrence Stroll's house just to make sure he's not holding Alonzo's kids hostage in his basement? Like it, it, it really does make you question like what is in that fucking contract? It's almost getting creepy, like, right? What is yeah, in it other than like? Yes, it's like are they are is Fernando sleeping with Lawrence? Like I don't know, like allegedly, you know, I, I I shouldn't speculate like that. You know what I'm saying? Like it really like it, it started to make me wonder: is it more than just money? You know, like take that where you want. God, we are even know. more <laughs> fast. Oh, that, that's the kind of shit that. No, this is a, this is kind of stuff that gets you shoot, sued by Lawrence Stroll, like no joke. Like so, we're playing it awfully. I'm sorry, Lawrence. We're playing it I'm fast sorry. and loose this weekend more than uh, more than other ones. So, um, God, fortunately, there. Lawrence is a good philanthropic man, and I hope he runs for prime minister of Canada. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's it feels odd at this point. Um, but yeah. It seems bizarre. It seems excessive. And the one that struck me too was I like the fact that at times Verstappen would criticize his team. Hamilton even, you know, when the team was struggling with porpoising, saying like, yeah, this car sucks, you know, but Alonzo now coming to this team and even coming to the support of his, his race strategists after Monaco saying, well, it's easy when you're sitting on the couch. Well, it's like, yeah, but you you lost a chance to win the race. So you, you had a chance, what was maybe your only chance to win a race all season. And you don't feel like a little bit uh, disgruntled by that. You don't have any criticism for the team. I mean, do you think he's just so happy to be in a reasonable racing position well after where he thought he would have been in his career? You know what? You know what I bet it is? What? I bet. And they used to speculate this about John Elway when, um, he got his Broncos contract. I bet Lawrence gave him equity in the team. I bet he got ownership. And I bet he got potentially some pathway towards ownership or managerial position after retirement. Because if he did, it would make sense why he would be more hesitant to deconstruct the organization in his with his words. If he knows he's going to be around or would have a financial interest, well, he, know, he knows That's Lance is going to be a part of the organization and management as well. Totally, so they probably as had the long-term conversation yep. of play nice, and this sets you up for the next twenty years, not just the next two years. I I don't I don't know if there's any precedent for that in F1 for current drivers, but it wouldn't surprise me. Well, as we've said, what four times on this episode already. Follow the money. Follow the equity. God dang it. God dang it. I'm going to cry myself to sleep tonight. This is the world uh, we live in, my friend. I, I'm sorry right, to, for, to break it so you, hard. You, you, you know what the best antidote to this is, though? Laughing at Ferrari fuckery. <laughs> Ferrari fuckery. Let's go Nothing there. Nothing lifts a man's spirits <laughs> like some Ferrari fuckery. All right, well... <laughs> Not to be outdone by other teams updating their car design. They took a shot, made some updates to Leclerc's car, going a little bit away from that very wide sort of bathtub side pod design and a little bit more in the direction of um, Aston Martin, Alpine, now Mercedes, with a bit of the narrower, kind of steeper, quote-unquote, water slide design through the side pod. And... 
uh, I guess the the nicest way you could describe it is potentially a step in the wrong direction. Leclerc this weekend qualified. <laughs> is that understating it? Nope. <laughs> I mean, Leclerc, the the qualifying phenom, qualifying nineteenth and recovering to a lowly sixteenth. Meanwhile, signs with the old spec car starting second and falling only to fifth. Uh, and and really, if you if you read it or listened to anything in from the post race. Worst of all, it seems like the lack of pace is inexplicable to them across the board. Not only do they suffer from the sort of characteristic higher than normal tire degradation, which explains signs falling from qualifying to the race, but they were talking about different performance across within the same compound and that being inexplicable and and you, you hear Leclerc and it's even more confused about what the hell happened. And so, I mean, do you think it was just a setup issue with this no, new car design for Leclerc? Or do you think they're legitimately kind of went down the wrong, the wrong development path? And is the engineering team just completely lost at this point? How about we just chalk it up to general universal incompetence? I, I don't know what the root cause is, but just think about the fact, Gerald. Leclerc was so he he the car was so bad that the only explanation he had is like the axle must be fucking broken. <laughs> like, <laughs> like there's no way that this car can be working properly. It's so bad. And I think the sad reality of it was the car was working as intended. <laughs> Like, yeah, like it sucks. I mean, for them, I think it it's was hilarious. working as I designed, mean, also, not the, unintentionally as designed. Correct. Not intended. Co- correct. <laughs> as designed. That's a good, that's a good clarification. Yeah. I, the, um, it, it's kind of wild. Like I, I'm starting to very much get to the, such a pessimistic view of them that I, I don't know that they're going to hold on to both their drivers for very much longer. And then they're kind of, we're, we're kind of getting into like, apathy has set in and now they're just looking for the earliest out like that's where i would be if i was their driver but the thing i guess i just like put car performance aside like i can almost even have an easier time forgiving bad engineering and bad design because the people that are making those decisions are still way smarter than me what i can't understand is the continued inability to have a hierarchy of decision making on fucking team radio how has this continued for so long? It's gotten literally to the point where Coulthard on the broadcast with signs made the comment like, are these guys not having a briefing before the race? Like, have they not discussed any potential scenarios and gotten on the same page about how they might react? Like, how does this keep happening? Like, that is the part for me that is the most inexplicable, putting car performance aside. Yeah, I mean, you see other teams where, like Verstappen, for example, with the fastest lap, they'll say things like, eh, it's kind of out of reach, maybe don't go for it. And then he goes for it. But that's the extents of, like, the usurpation of, of sort of the team strategy. Verstappen is very much feeding information to the team, 
feeding additional data, but the team is ultimately informing the broader strategy and Verstappen follows it. Um, except for maybe in Brazil, you know, last year, but you still see that structure, even when there's some natural challenging, but they're like debating the merits of different options mid race. And it's not like Alonzo picking different strategies. It's like, they're scrambling to make a decision and they don't even have like a, a rudder or a direction and not even close to being on the same page. Dude, it, here's the thing. Even if your decision-making is going to be that combative about how to run a race, just keep it behind closed doors, like not on team radio. Like that's the bare minimum. And the fact that their drivers can't means the drivers don't have respect for the team. At least not the respect that most other drivers do for their teams. And that is pretty much the most damning thing of all. Well, I think more damning than bad engineering. And where we and I've said this before, but that's where I ultimately like Signs more than Leclerc as a driver, because Signs at least recognizes the the stupidity of the team strategy and the fuckery. Is, the fuckery, let's be honest. There's it's not strategy, it's just fuckery. Signs is acknowledges the fuckery and is willing to challenge it mid-race. Whereas Leclerc is still sort of subservient to the fuckery and, and is willing to like serve the brand and has this very sort of romanticized view of the team. And, and so he, at least once in a while, Sainz is able to make a better decision than the team, whereas Leclerc is always subject to the fuckery. I can't remember the like official psychological stages of grieving, but whatever they are, Leclerc is in stage one. And has remained there perpetually. Just pure denial. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There you go. I, I thought you were. Yeah, you would know. That I, thought you were gonna go with, <laughs> I thought you were going to go with. I thought you were going to go with. Yes. I have. Uh, yeah. Um, I've already stepped in it enough this episode. I probably should avoid enough personal embarrassment. Um, yeah. Or I would thought you were going to go in the direction of Stockholm syndrome. Like. Like, I don't know that Leclerc fully accepts or acknowledges he's like still in love with his captor, whereas Signs at least is aware of like the the poor situation that he's in come come race day. But I, I think you nailed it. I mean, there was this comp there was this narrative floating around in the absence of the Imola race that, you know, to fill the void, there was probably entirely false reports that Hamilton, you know, Ferrari was pursuing Hamilton. And I guess my thought was why in the hell would Hamilton is not stupid enough <laughs> to wade into that shit show when he actually has a team that's like high performing and thoughtful and like has a modicum of like smooth operation from start to finish of a weekend. Pete Bonington has gotten more decisiveness in his pinky finger than the entire Ferrari pit wall. Like, <laughs> I think Hamilton's fine. He's not going anywhere. Yeah. But Ferrari is not an option, a, a, a reasonable suitor for anybody in the other top three teams, right? All right. Well. Definitely. Uh, and, maybe, for La maybe for Lance Stroll. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so do you think, um, <laughs> do you think, um, I guess, any other thoughts on, on Ferrari this weekend or... Pretty much same old, same old. No, that that was like cathartic. So yeah, thank yeah, we you really for lifted our spirits. Making after, sure to dedicate some time after to that. that one. Yeah, yeah. 
All right. Well, with that, I know there is going to be something that's going to lift your spirits even more. We will only dwell on this topic very briefly, but let's talk about Alpine. Gasly, moment of greatness in qualifying. I thought, here it is, the the inflection point in his season. Alas, two impeding incidents during qualifying, six places of grid penalties, fourth to 10th for the start of the race. What was your reaction and and just how excited were you? Well, first off, I would like to officially submit to the FIA suggestion box that uh, multiple impeding penalties should not compound linearly, but they should compound exponentially. <laughs> so the first one is three places. The next one is six places. Total of nine would be my suggestion. Um, you should be more punitive to repeat offenders. Uh, I love to see it. Uh, they were both very cut and dry cases of impeding. I would say probably even more cut and dry than Leclerc in the tunnel at Monaco in that like your vision's not impaired whatsoever in Barcelona. You should absolutely know where cars are behind you on those laps. I think the question in all seriousness on, in my mind is who's more at fault, driver or team in those situations? Um, I think like anything, it's probably a combination of both, but where, where do you, where do you kind of side on that allocation of blame? As you mentioned, Monaco, I mean, some of the commentary was it's actually kind of it messes with the GPS radar a little bit, given, you know, you have a lot of streets running in parallel to one another and and signal is kind of degraded. I don't think you have that problem in in Barcelona. And so, I mean, I think the team should easily be on top of that. And I feel like the drivers already have enough to worry about and they're all and numerous different drivers you can you can hear them on the radio saying you guys need to give me the information like it's not a surprise that drivers want to know when others are coming up behind them for this exact reason and so it should be part of normal operating procedure and one of your top three priorities as a race engineer during qualifying so yeah i i put that more so on the team assuming that gasly and pretty much every driver is setting that expectation of you need to be giving me gaps to drivers behind consistently throughout qualifying yeah i mean like why even qualify at that point he might as well have just gone about as often as yeah he might as well just gone out in q2 right like at that point like why are we even doing this qualifying thing yeah because those places lost mean way more than me squeezing out another couple tenths on on track what were you saying about his beard yeah oh mirrors sorry i was just saying he checks his mirrors about as often as george yeah, is jo- about as often as George Russell seems. Yeah, I thought you were at least going to go with Stroll, but yeah, damn, shots to Russell. Woo! Take <laughs> them while you can, I guess. There will always there will st- always be more I'm shots. Sti- I'm still not over. Hi- yeah, I'm not over his request to overtake Hamilton at Monaco yet. I'm not. That one's going to sit with me for a while. Uh, so, okay. So what's worse, Russell being asked, ask asking to be let by Hamilton? Or Alonzo refusing to easily pass Stroll? Oh, oh, this is an impossible question to answer. Uh, uh, I think that Alonzo uh, refusing to overtake Stroll is worse because it was a less passive action. It was more active. Like, Russell was just kind of petitioning, which to me I can chalk up as being a little bit more harmless, even if your intention was the same. Alonzo, like, 
unilaterally decided something and then acted upon it, uh, which bra- rather brazenly. And I thought that was kind of yeah. So I, 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 that one's worse for me, but it's close. It's very close. Yeah, at least the petitioning has like a there's a silver lining when it comes to a driver's personal race strategy, right? The choosing to to yeah. stop your race there's six laps and early is is a little bit more frowned upon, in my opinion. Um. <laughs> all right. Well. I mean, with that, McLaren, we already mentioned it, but Norris, great qualifying performance, putting it into third. But he crashed in the race. I mean, let's be honest. Did it really make that much difference on the final race outcome? Did you think he was scoring points this weekend anyway? If he was scoring any, he was scoring one. I will say, I think he was a little quick to vindicate himself in the post-race. And just be like, oh, we Constantina, and it was a racing incident, yada, yada, yada. Like, I think he deserves a little bit of the blame on that one for following a little too closely. Maybe being a little bit overeager. Um, hate it for him. You know, he's a driver that I like that I wish would get some kind of, I wish he'd be rewarded for his suffering at some point. But though, I, I don't know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. So, um, I got to tell you, I'm not sure in the race to, to see who gets more dejected with their team first. I don't know who's winning between him and Charles Leclerc. It, every week, I think somebody else steps ahead of the other one. It, it, it's it's a tight race. Well, I mean, at least I'd have to give that one to, to Leclerc still because Norris at least had a car to put him on third in pole and made the mistake himself. So, I mean, who's he pointing to on the team for, for that mistake? Whereas Leclerc's being put in a car that he can't even get out of 19th place in qualifying. So... Yeah, I, I think Leclerc is only taking steps back at this point and just has to be scratching his head, which I think while I don't believe there will be any new drivers on the grid next year, right? Like, I, I don't think we're going to see a market for lots of new drivers at this point. I do think they're setting the stage for some air, very interesting driver moves at top teams as Leclerc is woefully dejected with Ferrari, McLaren doesn't have it, so where does Norris look to next? And that and that sort of leads me to questions about Sonoda, which obviously Sonoda is is striving for something beyond AlphaTauri. Red Bull would be the the clear next choice when Perez moves on. And given the quality of the car, he's only received a stellar amount of praise this season for his sort of consistent. 10th, 11th place finishes, good qualifyings, had a chance to put it again into the points for the second time this season, sitting in ninth, and really a great battle with Hulkenberg and Joe all race long, only to have it all for naught by forcing forcing Joe wide into turn one, wheel to wheel going into the corner. Stewards made the decision to give him the time penalty, which put him out of the points. Looking at that incident, do you think it was the right call by the stewards to award the penalty? Uh, and and if so, why? I mean, I, I, I agree with the F1 TV broadcast here. I thought it was a racing incident. I think... Zoe entitled himself to make an effort 
on the outside, but I don't think that there should be a reasonable expectation that he'd be given space. And if he can't get, if he can't win the turn by the exit, he's not entitled to it. And it's a reasonable expectation that he'd have to back out. I thought it was harsh. Um, I, d- I don't know where the freeze frame has their cars relative position wise going into the turn. I think he was almost alongside, if not totally alongside, but it was so late. And, and Sonoda was already so far outside. Like, I just don't think what he was expecting Sonoda to do was reasonable based on where he put his car. So that's my take. What do you think? So as you know, I have been a Sonoda supporter really from the beginning, this year included. And so my first thought was, as well as being an anti-authoritarian, um, my first reaction was, Fuck yeah, Coulthard and Palmer. Like, give it to the stewards. You're totally right. Yeah, fuck those guys. That's bullshit. Um, and then upon... And then you read the letter of the and law. And then read the letter of the law and reviewed the footage wherein on the first account, if you are substantially alongside that you are entitled to space and the fact that going in, not even at the apex, but going into the corner... Joe passed alongside Sonoda. His front of his car was ahead of Sonoda's. You had this sort of moment where Joe passes, Sonoda sort of eases off the brakes a little bit to sort of get even with him going into the corner. But Joe was in front going into the corner, meaning that he was entitled to space. And while Sonoda might say he gave him space, he was understeering the entire race did not have a front end on that car was so slow to get on the throttle and so many corners. And in that one in particular, he was going towards the white line. I mean, there may have been a moment where he left space at the point where Joe veered off, but Sonoda made contact with the white line on the exit of that corner. And so there was no space to be had, but where I think Joe was at fault or his team was at fault for not passing along the information that, Sonoda is significantly understeering constantly and therefore going around the outside is a risk to you. So you need to wait, you know, keep pressuring him, force him to make a mistake and wait for a chance where you can kind of do either do an over under or whether you're able to make a more aggressive move to the inside, because then he's really fucked in his inability to sort of get the car around the outside. So I, I just think the team could have fed him better information about Sonoda's situation. Um, and as unfortunate as it is, I think in Fort, while stewards may not have inf- or have not enforced that rule in that way so often, I think by enforcing it, you are setting a better precedent where those cars could have gone wheel to wheel through a multi-turn complex. Sonoda was positioned while there was that left after the, the turn one right-hander, there's a back-to-back two right-handers on turns three and four. And so Sonoda was still better positioned for the inside line right and i just feel like by saying oh joe wasn't enough alongside it's okay that he gets forced out you're setting a precedent where you're eliminating the potential for that kind of wheel to wheel drama in future situations and so maybe for the first time ever i actually think it was the right call however painful it may be for sonoda and alfatari are you convinced i think that's well analyzed I, no, I, I, I will give, I will, I will 
tip my cap to you, sir. I think that's well analyzed. You make a persuasive argument. But I must ask, in light of that, if Signs does not back out of turn one and he and Max go together, is it Max's fault? I mean, I think there's probably a lot of things that where Max forces the issue that would be his fault. And that's, that's a calculus he's willing yeah, to. Yeah, maybe that's like... But he's doing it in a way where, yeah, yeah I, I think he just runs the calculus differently. Um, and, and, and I think, interestingly, he has set a reputation for himself. Mixed with the fact that he's far enough ahead in the championship points that he could damn near do whatever he wants. And so, yeah, is he probably at fault? Yes, but he, he, he understands the calculus and he's willing to roll the dice on those. And people are willing, and knowing that other drivers are are willing to concede. So credit to him for for setting the setting the precedent. The the, the gentleman from Pennsylvania yields the remainder of his debate time to the the gentleman from Colorado in the Viore pants. Well, well argued. Huh? Good good show. Good show. <laughs> nice. Uh, wow, that was far more uh, cordial than I was expecting it to be. Well, while we while we jumped down in the order, the one thing I do want to note. Real quickly, we we didn't talk about Haas, but once again, Hulkenberg qualifying in eighth place, finishing 15th, both of which are ahead of Magnussen, who was basically MIA the entire weekend and is more and more the the norm. We we touched on this previously, but is is Hulkenberg's relative performance pretty much the nail in the coffin for a Schumacher return to F1? It's not the only nail. <laughs> the, the final nail? It's, sure, it's another one. <laughs> Great, yeah. I mean, sure. Yeah. I, I'm i kind of sick of kicking Mick, to be totally honest with you. Um, you know? like Well, accountability, once again, I, I mean, I was a Mick homer. I was not a fan of the Hulkenberg move over Schumacher because I thought there was more intrigue with sort of his development trajectory. But I stand corrected, and... It was the right move on the team and good on him. And yeah, it, it makes you think maybe Schumacher wasn't the, was never the guy. So, I mean, I guess some, a shout out to Steiner for, for making the, making the tough decisions. As it turns out, Steiner's proclivity for more seasoned drivers is accurate uh, under the condition that those more seasoned drivers are not named Roman Grosjean. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, well, with that, before we start kicking Roman again, uh, let's get to our personal podium and DNF of the week. For myself, I got to give it to the Mercedes engineers and designers. Awesome job. Seems to be a step forward. We will see if it continues. Uh, as I've said, Hulkenberg making the race exciting. And and lastly, for Joe, getting in the points, making a difference for the team, outperforming Botas, pressure on Sonoda and some effective petitioning to the steward. So uh, really all around, all around good race for him. How about yourself? Now that I've taken half the grid. Uh, My personal podium just is simply um, Max Verstappen. In the words of Jean-Pierre Lambassi, absolute animal, just like clockwork. Uh, I, I rue the day that we get bored of this. And I think some people already are truly special. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's hard to not put him on a podium. Agreed. 
Uh, DNF of the, the week. Motion passes. Uh, I ha- I I I had race stewards for the Sedona call, but maybe I'd like to formally withdraw that DNF now. Uh, <laughs> in light of you know uh, our spirited debate, and uh, I will plead the fifth uh, on any other DNFs. Well, I think you can agree with mine then, and and second my motion of Ferrari engineers. I mean, what's next at this point? Here, here. <laughs> I'm I'm <laughs> I'm here for the fuckery here. if nothing else. So I can't wait to they, to hear what surprises what they, they have for what us. What are they doing? What do they do in Parliament? They like stomp on the ground and wave like papers in the air. That's what I want to do right now for that. Here, here. Uh, Mr. Prime Minister. Yeah, we need we need canes <laughs> that we can pound on the floor. All right. Well, I think that brings to a close a phenomenal Barcelona Grand Prix. And where we are headed next, the home Grand Prix of the one, the only Lance Stroll. Oh, Canada, my home and native land. That's all I got. <laughs> that's as much as we, that's more than I would have expected an American to know of a foreign country's um national anthem albeit now that america doesn't no longer televises national anthems for our own sporting events um due to the controversy that that entails i I feel like my own national anthem is now the, the dutch national anthem like i feel like i like sing along with it every weekend and and know it just as well as as our own so uh props for 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 stopping being a a premier ambassador for the netherlands uh, yeah, Montreal. Looking forward to it. Any projections for for the weekend? Where are you? Go- well, I guess a better question: Where are you going to be watching this Montreal Grand Prix? Uh, let me think. What time does it start? Eastern Standard Time. No idea. On Sunday. Uh, oh, wait a minute. It's Eastern not this time. coming weekend. Uh, I will weekends, be. Yeah. I'll be in, yeah, sorry, I'll, I'll be in Dublin. Yeah, per- presumably watching in a pub somewhere in Dublin. Nice. Hopefully you can find a good uh, a good active fan base, an active F1 pub. There, There is a, um, there was an Irishman F1 driver that they had on Beyond the Grid sometime in the last six months. I'm going to have to dig up his name, see if he's around. Can't remember him. He was fun, he was a fun interview though. Right, well, that's a great piece of information with minimal context and no jumping off point for further discussion. So, <laughs> great. I can do nothing with. <laughs> I'm not sure how I'm supposed to respond to that, but I, uh, I appreciate Sorry, that. Man. I'm, I'm digging at the, I'm digging at the bottom of the barrel. My whiskey glass went dry like 30 minutes ago. It's late. I'm, I'm dying. You're faded. All right. Sorry. Well, with that, safe travels, my friend. Enjoy the UK. Enjoy Ireland, and uh, best of luck with uh, all personal de- uh, endeavors while you're there. I can't wait to hear how the trip goes. Thanks, buddy. Enjoyed it. See you soon. Peace.